0: Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I talked with our colleague from the Center for Science and the Imagination at ASU, Ed Finn. Ed has just published a new book called What Algorithms Want, Imagination in the State of Computing. That has just come out from MIT Press. And we were so excited to host Ed, not just because he does a bunch of really interesting things. He has joint appointments as an assistant professor in the School of Arts, Media, and Engineering, and also in the Department of English. And as I mentioned, he's the director for the center for science and the imagination they do just a ton of fascinating things and talk to people like um graphic novelists and singers and other musicians and visual artists Ed is very much involved in the world of Emerge, the Festival of Futures that uh, podcast listeners will remember. We talked to Dave Gustin about his Frankenstein project. Incidentally, Ed was the co editor of the new book, Frankenstein Annotated for Scientists, Engineers, and Creators of All Kinds, that Dave Gustin mentioned in that podcast episode. So if that rings your bell or floats your boat, certainly go find that and and, uh, listen to it. It was very interesting talking about Frankenstein. Um, uh, You will also perhaps remember emerge from our interview with uh, experimental philosopher Jonathan Keats from a couple of weeks ago. In any case, we really enjoyed our conversation with Ed Finn. He is exactly the kind of person who really is thinking and doing things out loud very much focused on the future and I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Before we begin, as always, thank you for listening to the Future Out Loud podcast. You can subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you find fine podcasts. Please feel free to rate us, leave a review, let us know what you think. You can find us on Twitter at Future Out Loud, or you can like our Facebook page, Future Out Loud. Please tell your friends or somebody that you just met on the street about our podcast. We'd love to have them join our listener family, too. And as always, thank you for listening. Hi, Ed. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. Well, thank you for being here, Ed. I'm super excited to talk about your book.
1: Thank you. I am excited about it too. So. I'm excited for it to be done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to now get to have conversations with people about it rather than having to actually sit there and write it. So, Aww. so this was
2: your thesis project, wasn't it? I'm just trying to remember. No, I'm actually. Go, uh, right. Okay. Yeah. No. Yes.
1: Uh, there, there was a. PhD dissertation
2: some time ago book length
1: piece of writing that uh, the intrepid can find uh, open access as a PDF on the Stanford University (laughs) Library site but that is not this book and that is why it was hard to write (laughs) it it was starting, starting from scratch
0: or did that make it easier to write it because it, you didn't have to drag with you all of the baggage of finishing a Ph.D. dissertation? I,
1: I do admire your optimism, Heather. Thank That's you. something that speaks to me. It was, <laughs> it was easier. It was easier in some ways, uh, but uh, it, it took a while to figure out what the book was about. And this is something that we, actually, we talk about with Ph.D. students a lot. Mm-hmm. It seems to take a long time to figure out what you're actually going to do your Ph.D. on at least in the humanities and, I think, in the social sciences Mm -hmm. quite a lot Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, And so, uh, unfortunately, that doesn't go away (laughs) When (laughs) When you get older. It still takes a while to figure out what you're actually talking about.
2: So, so at which point I, I guess in the introduction you're going to say what well, this book is that we're talking about. Or right. maybe
0: I will have already said that because it will have already happened. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, how about that? There we are. There I we thought are. you did a great a job. All time bending. Yeah, right? yes. thank, you. thank so, you.
2: So I was going to ask at what point writing this did you suddenly, did it suddenly click and you realize what you were writing about?
1: I think that it took at least a full summer. Right. I, I approached this the first summer with a, a word goal that I wanted to try and write Something uh, crazy, like a thousand words a day Which Mm -hmm. is actually kind of a lot Mm -hmm. And uh, I did okay with that You know, there were good days and bad days But I I spent a whole summer doing that And realized I was so focused on getting things out on paper That I I hadn't been spent I wasn't validating or giving myself the excuse To spend time reading and reflecting And so I had to write myself Into sort of the middle of the territory And then start to figure out What the book was really about And I think that at that point when I had written a couple, I'd written one chapter that was, you know, a substantive story that I knew I wanted to tell, mm-hmm. and that was fine, and then I wrote an intro that I think I had to pretty much throw away.
0: Right, right. <laughs> I think that's the job of the first intro, is to get thrown away.
1: Yeah. Right. yeah.
0: Right. So, um, now, did you have the experience that people who are not me talk about, where the story just tells itself to you, and the pieces... Speak to you while you're writing, and you people just like
2: unicorns. I mean, I yes, guess. yes, exactly,
0: and and that you are simply the conduit for the book. Did you? I'm guessing the look that you're giving, which translates super well in a podcast, <laughs> that is not the case.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, um, and i I think that's I think that does happen. But this is a book that's about a complicated, abstract word, algorithm mm-hmm. that we throw around all the time, and we don't really. Uh, pause to define. And actually the farther you dig into what an algorithm really is, the more confused you become. And so it wasn't that kind of a book because I was trying to frame this whole big piece of writing around an idea that is squishy and Mm -hmm. nebulous and that uh, a great many people have very profitably kept squishy and nebulous. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you know, that that made it hard, and it meant that there. I had to figure out what the story was. It, you know, there wasn't a story that I was uncovering. It wasn't really an, an archival spelunking kind mm-hmm. of a book. Right. Um, I was spelunking, but I was spelunking through, you know, random people's blogs and,
2: and So, So you, yeah. you were really having to create the story rather than this mythical idea of like just being the, the, the conduit story. Like the storytelling
0: itself, story. yeah. Yes. You know, and I love that you use the word squishy because, if I'm not mistaken... Jackie Wernemont, who was on this podcast talking about algorithmic bias, I believe also used the word squishy.
2: I think she probably did. Yeah. Yes.
1: yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Jackie's work, and th- that's I think that's right. Uh, actually, in a lot of ways, the book is about the collision that happens when you bring uh, human life into contact with theoretically objective and predictable models of the universe that are written mm-hmm. out in code. Uh the, the the what happens when you do that is that uh, neither n- nobody nobody's happy right? It's a compromise mm-hmm. where nobody's really happy, uh, where the computers never really do all the things we we hope and imagine that they're going to do, and the the computational systems never effectively model the messiness of mm-hmm. actual reality. And right. so there's this continuous negotiation between these unmet desires on both parts, uh, and that. That's interesting. That's so. That's where this. That's where the story of the book really lies. Mm.
0: So, is there a way? Is it even possible to negotiate that in a way that everybody wins?
1: Well, or I is think, that
0: the last chapter?
1: Uh, I <laughs> do. I, it is kind of the last chapter, uh, th- but not. I, I, I sort of opened that up a little bit. I think that uh, the 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 fact is we're not going to unring this bell, you know, Mm -hmm. we're not going to pack up all of our computers, we're not going to stop hailing cars with Lyft and Uber, we're not going to stop using GPS, we're not going to put our smartphones away, Uh, and so we need to think about the lives that we want to live with computation, Mm -hmm. and I think the real danger is uh, is buying into the myth too much, and believing in the magic that we so desperately want to believe in with, with Uh, computational objectivity and and omniscience and perfection. Uh, And we need to find a way to be more attentive users, people who know a little bit about the machines that we're using. And I think that's the way that we can, you know, maybe not win than the way that we all thought we were going to win. You know, like when you watch the Apple commercial and these beautiful creative people are doing amazing things and then you Mm -hmm. open your laptop up and you're like, come on, Ah, where is my, you know, my, my, my magnum opus. Right, right. (laughs) Uh, You know, that's probably not going to happen for most of us. But, uh, but if we can become more uh, literate about algorithms and about these systems, I think uh, everything will be better. You know, the systems will be better because they do adapt to us and they watch us all the time, mm-hmm. and we'll be more effective and more thoughtful users of those systems.
2: So, so the book's subtitle is "Imagination in the Age of, of Computing." So, I, I guess this gets to that idea of how do we actually use algorithms and our understanding of algorithms to enhance or support our imagination, rather than as imagination killers.
1: Yeah. And I, I, find, you know, when you think about it, uh, I, I, when I was getting into, g- starting to think about grad school and and the research that I did for that, that PDF that resides in the Stanford Library. <laughs> uh,
2: I really by, th- by the way, can I just say how lucky you are to have a PDF? That probably means you've got at least ten more readers than I have in my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, yeah. I had to you know,
1: I, I, I went through a serious uh, soul searching about whether I should make it open access. And right. people said, Oh, don't do that, you know, nobody's ever gonna take this seriously if you make it open access and I, said, what? I, I know. <laughs> I think it, well, it's cause it was that somebody said, like, Well, maybe it might be slightly harder to publish it if you do that, but Turns out that didn't really matter. I'm glad (laughs) glad that it's available. Uh, So uh, I've completely forgotten your question in that. Oh, imagination! imagination. Oh, imagination! Okay, I should remember that. It's an important word for me. Uh, So, uh, what I realized when I was starting that previous work is that reading and writing have changed fundamentally. Mm -hmm. What it means in a very basic way to read and to write are totally different now than they were even twenty years ago, and so. We use these things to figure out who we are to sort of through the trigonometry of thinking about other people, understanding who we are. We use reading and writing to figure out who we are. So what it means to be human is also changing. And so uh, what we're going through now is the same process with imagination uh, and thinking about the possibility space of where we are or Mm -hmm. what you might think of as the horizons of thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because now what determines the horizons of your thought? Uh, how many of the questions you ask about yourself and the world now start with a Google query, right? right? Yeah. Uh, how much of the knowledge you have of the world, of current events, of your social sphere, comes through Facebook, right. or another social right. media mm-hmm. platform. So algorithms are in a very real way shaping the, the raw material yeah. of our imaginations Right. already.
2: Yeah. yeah so, so actually with that perspective on the world, we then become increasingly passive. And we leave it to other systems to tell us what we should be thinking, how we should be seeing the world.
1: It is easier.
2: Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> and that's
1: part of the allure, because we, and you know, on some level, we want to to, pass that cognitive load off, right? Yes. We want yes. to trust some system to deliver the most interesting uh, pictures of cats to us, rather right. than having so, to search for them ourselves. So, so
2: actually, this may not be relevant, but it, it ties into something which constantly bugs me and has done for actually decades now, ever since we've begun to rely so much on the internet. And that is, the internet actually isn't uh, the the sole font of of, of knowledge. It's very, very limited. But what we end up doing is we end up focusing on what we can find on the internet and forgetting Mm -hmm. about the things that we can't find. I Mm -hmm. think I mean that's a hypothesis with no evidence.
0: It is so rare that we see scholarly work that uses grey literature anymore. Whereas it used to be, like, how would you well, in medicine, how would you find... The science, you would go back through abstract books, right? That, that's that right. Where, whereas now, if
2: you can't find it in five minutes on Google, you assume it doesn't exist. That's right. Yeah, yes. yeah. That, Are
0: you challenging that notion, <laughs> Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> the I, I, well,
2: it's, it's.
1: Uh, so you know, in terms of scholarship, in terms of thinking, this is there's this. Incredible gravitational pull, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I use the example of, of Google autocomplete in mm. the book, which, oh, if you yeah. notice, you know, you type something in, you start typing in a question, and Google pops up with a guess mm-hmm. as to what the rest yes. of your mm-hmm. sentence is. And so, first of all, that's interesting because it means that thousands of people before you have typed this mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. So if you type in why, and then it pops up with why should I live, that means thousands of people have typed that question in. That's a whole sidebar we could get into confessional mode of, mm-hmm. of the search bar. But uh, when you're, uh, what happens when Google pops up something that's about 90% right, right. you know, or you hadn't quite mm-hmm. finished formulating, you hadn't finished your own sentence and has finished it for uh-huh. you, and so you get, you satisfy. You pull towards yeah. that, that yeah. question. Yes. Hmm. Yes.
0: And then how does that impact I'm just trying to carry it through for the slow-witted like myself. Um, So then how does that impact the ways that we think, right? Or the content of what we're thinking, if it's pre-thought for us.
1: I think there is this, uh, I find an analogy to the sort of, you know, click this button Mm -hmm. to express your political support for X. Or share this and you have become an activist, Mm -hmm. you know, this sort of. Uh, substitution of, of real political action, collective action, really anything for mm-hmm. you know pushing a button on a screen somewhere mm-hmm. uh, and convincing people that this is amounts to the same thing. So there is this, and then that the action becomes uniform, right? In and in different in a different way than if you had marched in a march and had to figure out what you were going to wear or write on your sign. You know, mm-hmm. just to continue that analogy. So I do think that our uh, th- there are these. Hazards in the this, the la- the ladder or the layers of abstraction that we see in right, right. computational systems.
2: So, so one of the questions there is: Is this a risk? Is it a threat? Or is it just something that is? And um, and I asked that as somebody that sort of entered their 50s a couple of years ago. So I now I I know I'm turning into the gnarly old man. Um, the that things that anything new is is bad. Um. <laughs> Um, but I'm thinking that so my gut reaction is this idea of people being steered by autocorrect and being too lazy to ask Mm -hmm. what they want instead asking what they're they're being given is a bad thing but maybe it's just a different way of actually experiencing the world and finding your way through it and I don't know that I'm objective enough to give a a good answer to that
0: well how can you even science that question Right, right, right,
2: right but it's exactly the same question as looking at the use of paper books versus Mm -hmm. digital reading, or sort of going back to me with my science, um, doing stuff with pencil and paper rather than using a calculator, for instance. Right, right. Um, And I would always say, yeah, the paper is much better because that's how I grew up. And I strenuously resist people that say digital is better, but who am I to say what's right and what's wrong?
1: Well, you know, studies have shown how adaptive we are, how much brain plasticity right. and mm-hmm. our thought processes change based on the tools that we use. Feynman used to talk about how important the pencil and the paper were right. to the process of actually, you know, that was the work. These were essential tools. Yep. And now you see people uh, thinking through computation, and that's part of what I mean is the, the potential for imagination in this new era. Right. You know, people in the chess playing world talk about centaurs, which are combinations of... of human expert players with AI and centaurs can be the world's greatest AI as well as the world's greatest human players right. mm-hmm. And that I think is indicative of a space where we can we can find new modes of collaboration Yeah, uh, and you know, we're still figuring out what those are uh, But it relies on some some better metaphors I think for how we interact with these tools right and right. starting to recognize their strengths, but also their, their, their limitations. Yes, mm-hmm. And And, yes. you know, the, basically the story's a little more complicated, yeah. and we always want to have a
2: really simple story. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. That makes a lot of sense.
0: I like simple stories. There's no way, though. That th- so is that a problem that we always want to create simple stories? And is that something that algorithms are intrinsically, I think, trying to simplify the story.
1: I'm going to answer that with one of the other sort of core arguments from the book, which is that uh, when you actually do burrow down and try and figure out what algorithms are, engineers will tell you an algorithm is a method for solving a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, mathematically, an algorithm is uh, something that happens in the space of effective computability, a, s- a set of problems in math that you can solve in a finite amount of time, mm-hmm. uh, predictably. And uh, and so I expand from that to something that I call the desire for effective computability. Because if you look, about, look at what people thought, fu- people were really depressed when Alan Turing and, and mm-hmm. these other folks started to figure out these proofs of computation in the, in the, the uh, mid 20th century. Uh, because they thought, oh this is actually a really small slice of mathematics there's all this stuff that falls outside of uh, effective computability and' we'll, you know now we, we'll never know uh, at the beginning if, we're, if' if a prop if a question is necessarily going to be solvable or solvable in a finite amount of time right. you know they were they started down this road because they were going to try and find a, a foundation a sort of a universal mathematical logic and, and a provable language of mathematics to say that. Uh, so so it was very really depressing at the time because it felt very small. But in the intervening decades, that space has gotten bigger and bigger. Now uh, driving a car is something that is effectively computable. Finding, right. your next, finding the perfect date, effectively computable. Evaluating someone for, their, for a job hire or for a, a loan, for a home loan. All of these things are now in that space of effective computability. And the Silicon Valley ideology is really about you know, building that out farther and farther, right. making everything computable.
2: So that both has its scary side, and I think it's very attractive side. So the scary side is you're basically saying everything that we thought was uniquely human, you can actually reproduce with algorithms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there's a lot of pushback against that, but you're finding an erosion of the spaces which we thought were uniquely human. On the other hand, and I think this gets back to some of the earlier things you were saying, we are so plastic, not in, only in terms of our brains, but in terms of our, our, ourselves as, as humans, that we can work out how to adapt to new capabilities and actually leverage them to our advantage, mm-hmm. and I guess creatively and imaginatively as well.
1: Yeah, I, and I, that I think is a really fascinating space that we haven't really begun to explore because, for the most part, we're not really designing our tools that way. Right. You know that right. I think there's an interesting, and I didn't, I don't get into this in too much detail, but there's there's a lot of kind of. Uh, pandering and paternalism in the design of complex systems for users Right. where you assume the user is a complete moron and you know you give them a pretty menu with a few things that they can do that probably won't break things right. but you tell them very little about what's actually happening on the assumption that they don't want to know and mm-hmm. if they did know it would only freak them out Yes. Uh, and so you know i think that needs to change um I was, I was intrigued recently uh, that Google's DeepMind uh, uh, machine learning group has been working with the National Health Service in the UK, and what they're coming up with is a transparency system to allow, uh, in an automated way, to allow people to see what has happened to each particular piece of data. So mm-hmm. the big issue is, you know, you give all everybody's health data to mm-hmm. Google and then you have no idea what's happening. Right. And sort of potentially nobody really knows because right. it's all in this big machine learning neural network black box. So they're using uh, sort of an, a modification of, of blockchain technology to just sort of say like, well, here's, here's a, a set of um, windows you can use to open up the black box and see mm-hmm. what, ha- what is happening to different pieces of data. And I think that kind of transparency is going to be really important to build in from the beginning right. mm-hmm. uh, to address these kinds of issues. Well, right.
2: right. it's
0: empowering yeah. for the users. Yeah. Right? So,
2: But it also follows a trajectory that, again, this is anecdotes, but I, I think if you look at different times of digital technology evolution, you see it, where you start off with very crude technologies where people embrace them because they can mm-hmm. do interesting things with them, but actually you have to try harder to actually do anything useful with the technology. Mm-hmm. and Then it comes out of that value and it's uh, va- that valley rather and it suddenly becomes very useful and very empowering. Um, and I guess that the trick is to make sure you do actually come out of that, that valley valley of, of chunky, clunky technologies mm-hmm. to the point where you begin to integrate them into your life in ways that are very useful and again back getting back to that word empowering. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I think that uh, so... We are in this this phase change right now right. When I talk about there's a, there's an ocean metaphor, this sort of this ocean of computation mm-hmm. uh, that in a lot of ways these these spaces are fundamentally unknowable to right. humans mm-hmm. you know, you're talking about millions of dimensions of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who are designing the most complex of these systems of machines can't tell you right. why they do something mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so we need to, you know, figure out what, I I think that we, we so we only relate to that space through metaphor and analogy, Mm -hmm. so we need to find, it's actually not unlike uh, physics, right, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. once you have the metaphor of the black hole, then people can understand the idea, but the Mm -hmm. metaphor also ends up defining the idea in certain powerful ways. It,
2: It actually gives you insights which help you better understand the physics around it. Yeah, yes.
1: So we need those metaphors. You know, I think we're just beginning to wrestle with that now and things are moving so quickly.
2: Yeah, I actually so I hadn't thought of it in that way. That makes a huge amount of sense. And mm-hmm. because now going back to the physics idea, so with physics we've got an, an almost unknowable world, but we gain insights into it through those those metaphors. So now we're actually now creating a largely unknowable world, but we can get valuable insights through those metaphors if we can develop the right sorts of metaphors.
0: Right, and well, and then the difference, I think, between physics and the world of algorithms is that physics is the natural world, right, right? whereas algorithms we have necessarily constructed. So it's incumbent upon us to um, encounter imagination in a bidirectional or more multidirectional way, yeah?
1: Yeah, this... uh I think that the very the fact that we constructed this computational universe mm-hmm. and built it on mathematical foundations is part of what makes it so alluring to think of it as perfect mm-hmm. and to think of it as objective. Uh, you know, because it's this weird right. interstitial space between a sort of a, a, a platonic mathematical you know right, right. ideal mm-hmm. and then. But at any time you implement any of these things, and the difference between uh, an algorithm as a as a set of mathematical steps in a proof, for example, right. and like the algorithm that tells the UPS driver which way to turn at the corner, mm-hmm. you know that the, the, the algorithm that UPS uses is a, is a thousand pages long, right? Because it has to it has to deal with so much human messiness. Except well,
0: UPS only turns right. Did you know that?
2: Actually, I think I have heard yes. that. Yeah.
0: Yes. So actually, maybe it's not that long. <laughs> Just no. turn right. What, what, I mean it's turn right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> eventually eventually you'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> um.
1: Well, th- th- it really it really is that long, and it's, mm-hmm. it's it's continual. it's It's not a it's not a solution. It's mm-hmm. a it's a process. Right. right? The, the, yes. the, 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 the thing is a process. And, it has mm-hmm. to be changed. Mm-hmm. And you day.
2: see this obviously with machine learning systems. That now we have got away from that idea of an algorithm as a rigid set of rules mm-hmm. to something that is adaptive. It does evolve yeah. um, according to, to the new information that's fed.
1: Yeah, I I think that uh, so this is machine learning to me. Is is really a sign of this the changing stakes of imagination? Because right. we move right. from a, a space where we have the problem and we had to make some steps or create some systems that would take us to the solution.
2: Mm-hmm. And with
1: machine learning, the the classic version is you have a problem, yep. you know what the solution looks like. You pick some training set and you say this is what this is what the right answer is. Yes. And then you ha- you black box the middle. Right. You have a system right. that that. Oh, given enough data will reliably give you the correct answers that you know about yes. mm-hmm. but then you don't know about the boundary conditions and you don't really know that much about the middle either Right. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's a d- different approaches and that some, some of them are sort of more knowable than others um, but when something goes wrong it's actually kind of difficult to unthread one part of the solution space for right. the rest of it right. because it's also intertangled yeah. so,
2: so the other thing and I think this ties in with that which fascinates me is if you look at the the either the social sciences or or the worlds of of, um, policy and um, public administration we talk a lot about wicked problems Mm -hmm. the idea that we have a world full of problems that are unsolvable in part because every solution affects the nature of the problem and so we've typically said that this is a uniquely human endeavor trying to live in a world where we can never solve problems but now increasingly what you're describing is digital systems that are perfectly adapted to address wicked problems because the solutions adapt as the the nature of the problem changes.
0: Yeah, but the systems, themselves as they evolve create new problems right, right? Okay. So, <laughs> so they so, are so their we own still keep self-perpetuating the own business, yes, yes <laughs> it, it gives us a job at the end of the day right. so now ed you this focus on you know imagination and the responsibility that we have with regard to imagination as we encounter algorithms this obviously ties in well with your day job not that writing books isn't your day job but Center for Science and the Imagination. So, how, where, wh- how are those worlds colliding for you? They
1: they collide all the time, uh, not not least in actually carving out the time to work on mm. something like a mm-hmm. book. Um, but but how do you do that? Let's talk later. <laughs>
0: I need some help with that. That's that's a, that's a
1: long conversation. It may re- <laughs> may require beer. Um, so uh, the for me the 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 mandate of the Center for Science and the Imagination for the first five years was really changing our relationship with the future. How do we get people to feel a stronger sense of agency about the future and to think about it as a a problem that we can and and an open, you know, a question that we can actually wrestle with rather than just putting it off or not thinking about it at all, which is quite often what people do. Increasingly, I'm. Thinking about the next five years is uh, making the project, figuring out what we really mean by imagination, because mm-hmm. imagination is another big, squishy, abstract word that people use in all sorts of different ways. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows they want it and that mm-hmm. you need it to be successful in you know any career that you that you have, uh, but uh, nobody really knows what it is. <laughs> and right. And so you know that is very interesting to me, uh, and I think we we've, we've done a lot of hands-on methodological experiments and putting people together and trying to create the conditions for imaginative work Mm -hmm. and imaginative Mm -hmm. thinking. And we've got some sort of hard-won insights about how you do that on a tactical level. Mm -hmm. But when you step back to a broader strategic scale, you know, what do we really mean? And how do you you teach imagination? Uh, How do you foster it? How do you even measure it or recognize it? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that, you know, there's going to be like a... Ten-point scale, uh, but uh, getting some handle on that is really important because I think that uh, it is our fundamental, uh, the, the the innate human capacity that we have that we're going to need to right. solve these problems. Because right. you you can't you know uh, to quote one of our colleagues at ASU, you can't innovate yourself out of all these problems we've innovated yourself that we've innovated ourselves into. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, but imagination
2: is going to be vital to finding. You know, orthogonal Mm -hmm. new 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 spaces Mm -hmm. to figure these things out. Yes. So so just talk a little bit about that connection between imagination and innovation because they are both words that are banded around. I suspect a lot of the time without people understanding what they're Mm -hmm. talking about. (coughs) So one model that I find
1: very helpful, uh, and I feel like this is a space I'm still thinking about. So I don't think this is my last word on this. But one argument that I find fairly compelling is that imagination is a precursor. Right. Imagination is a precursor to uh, doing anything that seems impossible or that is not, you know, immediately in front of us. So, uh, one path is to go from imagination to creativity mm-hmm. to innovation, yes. right? And yes. so, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Imagination is the unbounded uh, speculative mode. It's about seeing things that aren't there. Yep. It's mm-hmm. about thinking up new words and all, of the, all that that entails, uh, it's and you know, but like chefs have imagination, so you can mm-hmm. have a, an imagination of some a taste that you've never tasted before. Right. Sure. Uh, and then innovation is, is that creativity is is a imagination focused on a, sp- a specific set of crafts or mm-hmm. activities, and then I think innovation is the sort of social, technical, technical and uh, entrepreneurial consequences right, of right. that. Right.
2: Right. Yes. Yeah. So actually, th- I, that makes perfect sense, and it's how um, in the risk innovation lab just to sort of divert for a second, we tend to think about it, where you start off with that whole realm of possibilities when you come to the imagination and our ability to actually see into futures that that we can imagine are there, but then you crystallize that down into something which is actionable through
0: innovation.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and part of imagination is about figuring out all the things you should not do.
2: Right? As well, absolutely, yeah. yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, that comes up a lot. <laughs> right. I, mean, I have teenagers. I <laughs> <laughs> recently had teenagers. Well,
2: actually, I, w- I would a- say sort of the, those years are probably where you need an imagination bypass, so you don't think of everything that can go wrong right with your exactly t- right. <laughs> yes, That's exactly right. That's exactly Right.
0: <laughs> Well, speaking of things we should not do, we should probably not talk too much longer today. Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> but
2: I did want to say one thing. Getting back to the book, so I, um, you won't just said this, but I think it is rather cool that if you look at the the first sort of endorsement on the back, you've got Neil Stevenson, who, of course, if you go back to the nineteen eighties, wrote Snow Crash, mm-hmm. which was hugely imaginative. Um, with uh, um, and and sort of prescient with the internet, um, giving you a very very strong endorsement for what algorithms want.
1: Oh, thanks. It was uh, it was very uh, very kind of uh, Neil to do that, and I, I really lead with Snow Crash actually right. as a parable about the ways we think about magic, language, magic, and code as all sort of connected yes. somehow in our, in the mythic space of the human
2: mind. Great. This so is this the point where we say read this book?
0: Yeah, obviously, read the book, and we will have links to it in the show notes, and um, I gave a really brilliant, you know, introduction to it in the introduction to this podcast. I was
1: impressed, it made me want to read it. (laughs) Why, thank you, yes,
0: great. Um, But no, really, um, you know, I haven't read it yet, and I'm very excited to read it, like, legitimately excited to read it, Um, so thank you, and I... I know, Ed, you're doing a hundred other really interesting and fun and, dare I say, imaginative things. So I hope you'll come back and talk to us about those.
1: I would love to. Thank you Heather and Andrew for having me. This was great. That's
0: Perfect. It. Thanks. For more where that came from, including our undergraduate and graduate programs, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and in Society at sfis.asu.edu Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Mark Van Hare created our music. Anna Lopez is our production assistant. Please subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell your friends and let us know what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Future